ready? Too bad. Face forward, head back, and hold on like you mean it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Review Time Podcast. This is a weekly show where we discuss all the ins and outs of attractions and parks from around the world. Coming to you from Time HQ, my name is Dominic Lacey, creative host behind Review Time, and I am joined remotely by none other than content host of Review Time, Luke Carroll. And without further hesitation, let's lower those harnesses, check those yellow straps. Luke, how are you doing down there in Sydney? I'm not too bad. Sunday afternoon, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. I um, I probably had a more relaxing weekend than you. I've heard that you're planning your trip for Orlando next year. Yeah, always exciting. Uh, That's kind of what gets me through going to Disney parks is the intense planning. I talked to my friend in Orlando yesterday and we're like, okay, we're looking at this. We've already booked this. We've already booked this. He's like, you are going crazy. (laughs) And it's pretty much the only thing that keeps me going in the like year it usually is between Disney trips. Well, that's the problem about being in Australia is that we have our three parks. Well, our three major mm-hmm. parks are like right next to each other. So, we can maybe get up there once a year. And if we want to go on a big trip, we have to go elsewhere. Um, so, mm. should we introduce a little bit about what this podcast is? Yeah, sounds good to me. Sure. Um, so, this will be a weekly podcast. Um, we'll be doing this uh, pretty much the same way in which we do review time videos, where I will be coming uh, once every fortnight with a topic, and you'll also be coming with a topic, mm-hmm. and they'll be about attractions or parks that we've been to. It's a way for us to expand on what we've talked about in review time, because obviously being condensed to the YouTube format, we don't have a huge opportunity to talk about very many things because you've got to sort of keep it concise otherwise people get bored and disappear yeah i think that's a the good thing about this it will allow us to talk for almost double the length of a regular review time episode about something that may only be not even a minute in a regular review time review of a park exactly things that you want to discuss that you might just have to either glance over or just get rid of because you know it may not be entirely relevant so this is essentially a vessel for discussion it might also introduce some more insight into the world of theme parks and it may also give some help but we'll see how it evolves over the years this is obviously being a pilot episode it will take us a little bit of easing into but i reckon we'll get there All right, I'm pretty sure that means we can start. So, you are coming to me this week with something that I know you're pretty passionate about. So, do you want to introduce it to us? Yes. So, this week, um, we're talking about Mystic Manor. So, Mystic Manor has a very special place in my heart. Uh, I was living in Hong Kong probably, I think, about a year after it opened. So, it opened in May 17th of 2013. Um It's just an incredible ride. There are so many things that Disney did right with this attraction. When was the first time you were able to ride it? Uh, So, that was on our very first trip, the trip the review time actually started on in 2017. It was also my first ever trackless dark ride that I had the chance to go on, and it blew me away as well. Um, While I don't have the same emotional connection... As you do to the ride, it's still probably easily in my top five, if not top three rides at all time all around the world. Definitely. And it's one of those rides that I think not only like it's an original attraction by Disney. This is something that I can't really think like I was going through my brain through the last 10 years as to 
what rides have actually been original that they've made that aren't attached to any IPs at all. And I can't think of any. I think Mystic Manor may be the most recent, and that was six, almost seven years ago at this stage. I'm thinking as well, I know Shanghai didn't open with any, and the US parks definitely wouldn't be doing it. The only park that may have would be Tokyo, but even they are going down the IP route more often nowadays. So I honestly think this could be the last IP attraction Though hopefully someone proves us wrong if we are. <laughs> exactly. Well, we are leading into a new decade. The end of this decade has sort of spelled out that Disney are leaning towards more IPs than anything else. So I'm hoping that we can get some more original ideas. But even with things like Soaring in Tokyo Disney Sea, that was still generously taken from the Soaring IP. Like there's no original characters or anything like that. So to have an original character piece is amazing. Yeah, so there's Soren at Tokyo has, like, the pre-show of that new character that was designed in a really elaborate pre-show from what I've heard, and that part of it is beautiful, but the ride itself is still 90% Soren around the world, which, uh, have your own opinions about, but isn't the greatest version of Soren at all, in my opinion. Wobbly, fair, uh... Wobbly... What's that thing called? The Eiffel Tower. <laughs> yeah, wobbly Eiffel Tower and all. Yeah, I... I really like the Epcot version. I honestly don't know much about the Tokyo Disney Sea version. Um, not that I've been purposefully ignoring it. I just don't really know anything about it. I haven't really been keeping up with it, mainly because it's really hard to get information out of Tokyo because they're all Japanese over there and there's not too many English outlets. Yeah, you pretty much have to go there to experience it. I was uh, lucky enough, the I just got back from California a few months ago and they were rerunning uh, Soaring Over California instead of Soaring Around the World. And I forgot yeah. how much better, in my opinion, that version of the ride was, especially for DCA as a park. Is Soaring Around the World the one that's at Epcot? Uh, so, on your last visit, yeah, Soaring Around the World is at Epcot and it was at DCA and is now back at DCA. But for around three months over the summer, they went back to the original version, which was the one that opened at the park in 2001. But it uh, had been updated to be in 4K now, so it looked really crisp. So uh. the one at Epcot, that's the one where you like go to around the world, essentially to Paris and uh, you well, land in Epcot, I, I believe. Tower, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I actually always find it funny because I think it still uses the same ending as um, Soaring at California. So you've got Tinkerbell flying around Spaceship Earth. I, I, it just doesn't work for me. Uh, the, so the DCA one, you do land back at Disneyland um, and it has Tinkerbell. So it is redone for Epcot, though maybe it would have made more sense if it was Figment or something you instead of Tink. <laughs> that, that is a really good idea, actually. They should um, definitely look into that if any Imagineers are listening, which I highly <laughs> doubt <laughs> for our pilot episode. Um, anyway, just bringing it back to Mystic Manor, because that is the discussion point of this podcast today. Um, so some key points on Mystic Manor. So as you mentioned before, it does use the trackless ride technology. Mm. It's not the first utilization of this technology, but the first one was in the year 2000, which was Pooh's Honey Hunt at Tokyo mm. Disney Sea. And I can see why they didn't use it for so long, because that ride was expensive. 
Like that yeah. was an incredibly expensive attraction. So I can tell that Disney, especially the um, the Burbank executives and the Imagineers would have been looking at that and going, is it really worth 150 to 200 million US dollars for this ride system? Which when you look at what rides around the world cost, that's about the same as something like Expedition Everest cost. Oof. So what's a, you know, just a, updated version of a fantasy land dark ride as spectacular as Pooh's honey hunt is isn't quite as good of a draw to people as a massive version of everest with a fully working giant animatronic yeti well used to be fully working (laughs) when it opened shall we say so the music inside the attraction is uh, designed by designed and composed by Denny Elfman. So he's known for a lot of Tim Burton music. Uh, I haven't really seen a movie with his music in a while, but there was that period where I believe it was Alice in Wonderland, um, not Sweeney Nightmare Todd, before Christmas, Nightmare right? before, uh, before Christmas. There were just yeah. heaps of Denny Elfman um, films. The bat, one of the Batman. Um, theme songs, I believe, is by him. Ah, yeah, yeah. So he's yeah. He does have quite an extensive history with Disney, so it is understandable as to why he was given the role. Um, mm. and his style just suits this attraction mm. spectacularly. But I think a lot of people don't actually know that it's not any Disney um composers writing this music. It's Danny Elfman mm. who's mostly working on Hollywood. Yeah. So. The soundtrack is one of the most memorable parts of the attraction for me. I keep looking every now and then on YouTube to see if anyone has like a master source audio of the soundtrack to the ride, but it doesn't exist, which is such a shame because Disney's made and composed so many unique, incredible uh, soundtracks for their rides over the years. And usually they're released in some way, whether it be on Spotify or on a CD in the park or something, but there's no source audio version of the Mystic Manor soundtrack. There's the versions that have like little sound effects from within the ride that you can tell have just been recorded by somebody on the ride vehicle, Mm. but there's no perfect version to listen to. And it's such a shame for such an amazing track. And they could easily put it into a three minute version and chuck it on um, Spotify. But I think the person, you know how you've always got those source audio versions from the US parks I have a feeling that's an Imagineer who's very proud of his work yeah, <laughs> and he's yeah. doing a little bit of a sneaky on the side. That's just, that's my head cannon for those because they're way too crisp. I have heard mm-hmm. of some people who will literally hold up those portable microphones to the speaker and if you mm. put them on the right sensitivity, then it sounds immaculate. And I think mm. someone's done that for a couple of Hong Kong songs, but it'd be impossible to do in a dynamic ride like Mystic Manor. Mm-hmm. So, the Imagineers behind the attraction, um, they're not super familiar Imagineers Well, that I'm familiar with. I think they're part of the sort of new wave or the new generations of Imagineers. Um, one of them who's now quite high up in Imagineering ranks. So, there's Joe Lanzacero. I'm bound to get these names wrong. Mm-hmm. And Mark Shermer. So, they worked on the attraction um, and they actually talked about it at D23, which is where I've gotten a surprising amount of information that I honestly didn't know before this. Um, Joe was an animator at Walt Disney Studios from 1979 to 1986 and is now vice president um, of Imagineering. And Joe, uh, not Joe, Mark Shermer was the show producer of the attraction. 
it's amazing that they've still got people coming from animation to Imagineering. That's obviously how it all started, um, even though that's like 30 years ago. It's interesting to see that it still gives you such a great background into creating these almost cinematic moments. If you look at Mystic Manor, it really could be a film about this guy's life, about this guy's house condensed down into three minutes and having people who come from a film background kind of makes perfect sense when you ride the ride and see how it is. Exactly. And when you look at all of the characters and the way that it's all been designed, I was watching the Imagineering story and you can really see, and they make a great point that a lot of these things, like you've got a engineers and you've got people who work with the mechanics, but you need these creative designers to be able to put it all together in the way that they do. And Mm. one other thing about the attraction before we move on to the full ride experience itself Mm -hmm. is that it features the Society of Adventurers and Explorers. I think I did that that around the other way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the Society of Explorers and Adventurers, um, which is pretty much the Marvel Cinematic Universe of Disney Mm. Parks. You've Mm -hmm. done a video on this before. Mm. So um, is it in Mystic Manor that they have the picture of all of the members of C and it has, you know, the people you'd expect. So Harrison Hightower, the person who runs the um, Skipper Canteen, all those in one. I think, is that the first time we ever got to see all the characters together? Yeah, it's on the queue. So as you're walking in, Mm. it's just on the left-hand side. It's between, uh, there's a portrait of Danny Elfman, who is officially a part of Mm. C. Um, So it's right there as you walk in. Mm. I'm still blown away with this idea and how they've managed to pull it off. And they're really embracing it as they start to move in. And I think that sort of has to do with how well these cinematic universes are doing there, mm. there was sort of that brief one back in, I think it's the 60s, with the um, Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean all being in the same universe. But I think this is the proper realisation of it. And it's something that if you know about C and you're riding these attractions, it's incredible. It's just one of those small details that makes you go, oh. Yeah, C is really awesome to me, but it's a shame that, now, the way we seem to be going with all the IP tie-ins, we're probably not going to see another C attraction for the foreseeable future. I mean, I can't think of any way they would tie it into any of the recent films that are likely to get an attraction. And the kind of idea is that it was a Disney Parks kind of cinematic universe. But the Mystic may be the last thing. Maybe the new Soren might, she might be part of it. The for oh, yeah. Disney C, but apart from that, looking at what we know Disney has coming up over the next six or seven years, this could be as big as the universe gets. Yeah, it is sad to think that it, it may be on its way out, especially considering the backlog that Disney has of really popular IPs that they haven't yet translated into a tra- an attraction. Um I just think that they don't necessarily have space for original ideas anymore. And whilst they're still making original attractions, like if you think about what's come out recently, you've got Rise of the Resistance, Mickey's Runaway Railway, um, you've got Soaring at Tokyo Disney Sea that still sort of, it's not necessarily fully original. So mm. it is sad to see Disney going that way. But I think even with those sort of things, like as you've said, um, Guardians of the Galaxy 
you really like the facade's mm. ugly, but you really enjoyed the attraction. But I'm thinking I think that's the yeah, I think that's the way Disney is going now, and it's the correct way to do it. Is they're no longer doing the what we call the book report rides, so things like the Little Mermaid and all of your classic Fantasyland rides, where you're just riding through the story and it's a very passive experience. The good way, in my opinion, and the way they've been doing it lately, is the you're part of the universe of the IP, but exploring something completely new. So, you know, Radiator Springs Races, that's not taking part in the film, that you are taking part in that, just you. It's not reliving anything you've seen before. Same with Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout. It looks to be the same with uh, Rise of the Resistance. It's definitely the same with Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run. And in my opinion, whilst I wish we'd go back to some more original ideas like Blue Sky, Let the Imagineers' creativity run wild, the non-book report version is probably the best way to do an IP ride. I do agree. And whilst the like the idea of you being in the character's eyes was revolutionary, as they mention in the Imagineering story, no one really got it. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> even though with, uh, I think it's Snow White, Scary's Adventure, I yeah. don't even think this was in Imagineering story. I think this was another thing that I was watching. But they were saying yeah. that when they first made that attraction, people didn't get that they were Snow White. People and were asking, where is Snow White? Exactly. Why is Snow White not in her own attraction? <laughs> and they ended up having to in-house build these Snow White uh, static figures. That's why Snow White's just sort of hanging out in that mm. attraction because people just didn't get it. Um, yep. But I'm thinking that we'll have a, a very quick break and then come back where we'll talk about the ride experience itself from the moment that you walk into Mystic Point until when you're leaving through the gift shop. Looking for more theme park content about ride history, reviews, and more? Be sure to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash review time. That's time with a Y. Now back to the podcast. All right. So the first time I ever experienced Mystic Manor was, I think I had been in Hong Kong for about two days. I was living in Hong Kong at that point on a six-month student exchange. This was about the same time that you were heading over to Disney to work there. Mm -hmm. So it was an exciting Disney time for both of us. But I was adamant on getting my season pass. I had bought two season passes before I left for Hong Kong. This was the first time I was ever going to live somewhere where there was a Disney park or just a theme park in general. So I was still jealous with you because you've now officially owned a Disney season pass. Even though I worked (laughs) at Disney and had the main gate that got me into all the parks, I've still never owned a Disney season pass. It might just be a goal one day where I might only be going to the park once in a year, but I'll buy it just to say I have it. Well, even when we went back to Hong Kong in our 2017 trip, Mm. We got a season pass to get this ridiculous discount. It was like 50% off anything over a certain amount. And you just had to have one. So we ended up putting it under my name. So I robbed you of that opportunity Mm. again. I think that might be the most math we have ever done in our life, where we tried to figure out how much money we needed to spend on merchandise (laughs) to make it worthwhile to buy a season pass. Well, I was like, Luke, we have to get our merchandise at Hong Kong. Tokyo Disney's merchandise is just not very good. (laughs) Yeah. Until I went to the 35th and then wish I had brought another suitcase. So if you go to Tokyo... 
if you're going for a special event or a special celebration, definitely bring space. <laughs> Outside of that, unless you like really loud Japanese stuff, don't worry about it. So the first time I ever saw Mystic Manor was I had gotten my season pass and I just walked through the gate. And there is an amazing feeling when you live near a park and you get your season pass and you first go in, you're like, I can just come here whenever I want. It's very cool. So the first thing I did, well, I actually had about a three hour gap between other arrangements. That morning I had university and my parents were actually in Hong Kong at that time. So I had this three hour gap where I had to get to <laughs> Disney, just have a quick walk around and then head back. And I did manage to make it. But the first thing I did was did a walk around of the entire loop of the park with the intention of finishing at Tomorrowland, which we'll get to the reason why later on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when I first walked into Mystic Point, like before you get there, you have to go through Gri- Grizzly Gulch. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. But Mystic Point, that facade for Mystic mm. Manor is divine. And I, it's one of those things like the Millennium Falcon at mm. um, Galaxy's Edge where you just walk around a corner and you're like, wow, that is incredible. And Hong Kong doesn't have anything else like this except for perhaps Space Mountain because mm. you back at that point you had the mini mansion, not the mini mansion, the mini castle. Mm. And... There was no real wow factor into walking into Hong Kong Disneyland. I think there is going to be now as we get the new castle. But back then you walked in, you're like, cool, I'm in a Disney park. It wasn't like Walt Disney World where you're like, wow, I'm in a Disney park. So that was very cool. I ended up making my way around the park through Mystic Point. I didn't ride the attraction because I didn't have enough time and I didn't know how long it would take me. I did look up a couple of POVs beforehand, so I did spoil the experience for myself. I don't think that ruined it. Mm. If anything, it made it a little bit better because I knew what was coming up and I was anticipating Mm. things, so I knew where to look, but I skipped past it. So I didn't Mm. ride it at that point, and I head straight to Space Mountain and rode that as well because that's my favourite attraction. (laughs) No surprise there. (laughs) So that facade and this was a fun fact i actually found out today um it's based off the carson mansion in old town eureka california Mm -hmm. which if you look it up it's a splitting image apart from the um top points which sort of uh inspired like of the roof uh russian Mm -hmm. architecture indian architecture things like that because they wanted it to look like this was someone who had been all around the world and harnessing their sort of different architectural stylings But that same mansion was the inspiration for the original clock tower of the train station at Disneyland. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Um, Neither did I. So, (laughs) they're recycling (laughs) this uh, Victorian mansion, which uses this Queen Anne architectural style. Um, I'm... I looked it up. It does very much look like what you expect from Disney. It's like if you take Victorian and just make it far more regal. That's Mm. sort of iron, green iron design wrapped around sort of almost Venetian. Um, In my head, I know what I'm talking about. It's probably not translated very well. I think if if you look at a picture of it, you'll understand exactly what you're talking about. Um, It's kind of... This perfect, it just looks like an adventurous house. Yeah. Really. And it looks like someone who's been all over the world and he's kind of thought, well, I'm going to add an expansion to my house based on this style of architecture after I've just been to the country and so on and so forth. And you get this, 
it's almost disjointed, but in a beautiful way. Like it works, even though it shouldn't yeah. in your mind, if you can understand. And I agree with what you're saying. In 2017, when we went, the castle was so, eh, because it's the Disneyland castle, but without the magic and memories of the Disneyland castle. So it was kind of forgettable. But walking around and seeing Mystic Manor was almost like, well, this should have been the castle. This is the original, <laughs> you know, facade. This is the big, it's it's probably like, it's better in my opinion than any of the Haunted Mansion facades apart from the original. And it would be between the Disneyland facade and the Mystic Manor f- facade for my favorite, shall we say, house style facade in the world. Yeah, it is just one of those buildings that, Whenever I would go to Hong Kong to photograph it, because being a season pass holder, that's just what you do for fun. Uh, <laughs> I would always photograph that building. It is amazingly designed. And as we were saying before, you can't really explain it. It is this amalgamation of different styles. Um, and if you look it up, it all makes sense once you get into the story. And in a segue... Getting into the queue, this is an entirely original story by Disney. It's based off no IPs, and that was a challenge for the Imagineers because how do you tell a story in a park with Cantonese, English, and Mandarin on something that they had never heard of before? Mm. And how they pulled it off is just incredible. So immediately as you walk through the door, as you're going into the queue of Mystic Manor, right there, front and center, is a portrait of Lord Henry and Albert. And immediately you can see that Lord Henry is this regal, sort of quirkily dressed, almost aristocrat mm. Um, You can tell he's a man of, of business who has his own taste. Um with Albert on his shoulder, I think it is, or he's holding him, who is yes. looking very quirky, very um, just playful. It's this huge contrast between the two characters. Mm. I think the interesting thing for me is uh, when we were talking about doing this podcast about Mystic Manor, I actually had to go back and watch a video about the queue because <laughs> Hong Kong Disneyland is so quiet. We never really had to wait. I remember pretty much walking straight into the pre-show room every time. But then when I did go back and look at the videos of the queue, I remembered it. Things like the facade, like the little model of the house in the queue. I remember like looking at and gawking over for quite a few minutes, like kind of letting people go past us in the queue just so we had time to look at it. And it, it really builds up that perfect idea of who this man is. You get an idea of him without the real need for words or anything until you get to the pre-show room. You understand he's a collector because he's got all these different things from around the world and they feel real and tangible. You know, he's got like glass cases filled with helmets and stuff like that. And you just can tell he's been everywhere in the world. These are all the stuff that he's brought back and it matches perfectly with the facade of the house outside. And it's kind of like almost... Uh, what would you say? You're walking through his collection in like his basement almost? Yeah, it's like um, almost a museum. Like 
in the lobby of a museum. You know how you've got those mm. little bits and pieces, but you're not quite seeing the main show mm. yet. So you've got this idea as to who Lord Henry is. And kudos to Disney as well for taking the model of Mystic Manor and just going, yeah, throw it into the attraction. Yeah. <laughs> is that the Imagineering model? That's the Imagineering model. If you look at it, awesome. it's not quite the same as what we got in the end which makes me think that was more the conceptual idea. Mm. So I think they literally just took it and just went, yeah, that works. So I, so. <laughs> I think- Very progress city from uh, the people mover. <laughs> exactly. But as you're walking through this queue, you're introduced to Lord Henry. They've got the pictures of him with C. They've got pictures of him all around the world, gathering different idols and different bits and bobs. Also, they're playing out where he's getting the cursed- music box and you can see there the tribe that he gets it from they hand it to him and all of the tribes people are looking very ominous and evil whereas he's just there very cheerful and happy he's gotten what he's wanted so (laughs) he doesn't really understand what it is i looking at it he's strictly business he doesn't believe in all of this Mm -hmm. mumbo jumbo so he's just got things from around the world because he wants it now a fun fact Um, When you get into the attraction, like into the actual queue room itself, where you're introduced to Lord Henry and Albert in the video, similar to the Mm -hmm. Haunted Mansion stretching room, actually, I'm fairly certain it's the same shape as well. They play Mm -hmm. a little video that gives you a bit more context into the attraction. Lord Henry is voiced by Stephen Stanton. Now, he's one of these voice actors that you've probably never heard of the name but you know of him. So mm. he voiced the Mark Twain riverboat captain at Disneyland. Awesome. Um, he has voiced Yoda and Obi-Wan in spin-off content for Star Wars, <laughs> as well as looking through it. I was scrolling through his Wikipedia page. He's probably voiced over 50 Star Wars characters. Um, he... Has He was on Family Guy. He's been one of their sort of staple background mm. voice actors and Robot Chicken. But his main billing, the thing that he's most recognized for, have you played Bioshock? No. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> in the <laughs> sure video, someone out there has. <laughs> in the video game Bioshock, there's these huge, big, monstrous, mechanical- Big sort daddies? Of big daddies. I am familiar with those. A yeah, lot yeah. of people have seen them. They're just these mm. big, evil-looking things. All they do is grunt and moan, and they sort of sound like whales. Here's their voice actor. <laughs> so, you've very, got- Very Alan Chiek, just voicing something that doesn't have a voice, per se. Well, leading into Albert, so you've got this voice actor who's most famous for just making noises. Mm. Albert is the complete opposite. So, he's voiced by Frank Weller. Now, this guy has Mm. a Mm -hmm. huge filmography page, um, very recognisable and influential roles. But again, probably one of those people that you haven't necessarily heard of. Um, He's Fred Jones and Scooby-Doo. He's Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. He was the voice of Megatron in the Transformers TV Mm -hmm. series and the voice of Dr. Claw in Inspector Gadget. So, you know, that Mm -hmm. like, bring me Inspector, that voice. Um, He's also Garfield. So Mm. I'm sure... Everyone would be familiar with at least one of his works, even if they're not familiar with him. Exactly. And that's, I just find it incredible that they took these two huge names and just put mm. them into this attraction in Hong Kong. Like, it's. And they not- really wouldn't even have 
what, a minute of dialogue, Lord Henry Mystic, in the entire attraction? Well, he does the pre-show and a little bit at the start and the end. So, yeah, yeah, he, he pretty much is just there a few for minutes. a wow. minute and a half. And Albert mm. just makes monkey noises. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> you've got the actor who plays Fred Jones and Scooby-Doo just sitting there going, making monkey sounds. I just, mm. I always find it incredible. Amazing. Similar to... um. Uh, you were saying Alan Alan Trudek, who yeah. voices um, Hey Hey, Hey, among many other things, uh, Duke Weselton. For a while there, he was Disney's Lucky Charm. Yeah, <laughs> so they try and put him in anything. Uh, he was King Candy. Uh, I think technically he's in Frozen Two, but it, I think it's just a reuse of the uh, Duke Weselton line. Ah, uh, okay. So. So we've gone through the queue, we've had the pre-show, it's this quirky little introduction to the attraction, sort of sets the mood, and Mm. now we're heading out of the pre-show and we're hitting the right experience. So this room sort of introduces the electric carriages, which they've actually Mm. themed to in-world as you're going through the secondary queue to get to the loading area. There are little signs on the walls of Lord Henry inventing this new technology and he's winning awards for them and things like that. So they do a good job of putting the vehicle into the the ride. And that was Mm. very intentional in a lot of older attractions such as... um, I would like to say parts of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion, the ride was simply a vessel for you to get around. And this wasn't the case for Mystic Manor. They wanted the ride, like the the ride vehicle, to be a part of the experience, to be another character. And I think they they pulled that off because when you're riding it, the way that they interact with each other and the way that they move around – they do feel like they have their own personality and they sort of fit in with everything in a similar way to the cars do in Indiana Jones. Like you can't mm. have Indiana Jones without the the vehicles they have, but you can have the Haunted Mansion with a different style of Omnimover, if that makes sense. Yeah, so Omnimover, as incredible as it is with Bob Gurr's work, I do understand what you're saying. And I think that's a real strength of the trackless dark rides in general winnie the pooh as well has a really stylized ride vehicle uh mystic manor obviously does if you look at rise of the resistance it seems to as well in that the ride vehicle can almost become anything to better tell the story it doesn't just have to be you know a new coat of paint slapped on something like a roller coaster does or something like that it becomes part of the story in the way that they want you to pay attention to it A lot of ride vehicles are getting them and kind of forget that they're there. They're just taking you from point A to B and that's it. Ride vehicles in trackless dark rides and especially Mystic Manor um, tell the story as part of it. I think the the other room in Pooh's Honey Hunt, the one where they're dancing with each other, that gives you a really good idea of how those ride vehicles are part of the story as well. And it almost feels as if they expanded on that room for the entire attraction in um, Mystic Manor. Exactly. The way that they dance around with each other. It really is incredible. The ride has 37 um, ride vehicles. So they're all going around in tandem. I believe that about 10 at any time are off the track. Mm -hmm. So at most times you've probably got about 25 vehicles going around. They use a Wi-Fi and RFID system 
to sort of get around the track. It's, I guess, similar to the way in which they use the copper wire under some mm-hmm. of the old trackless ride systems where you would have a magnet which would essentially just mm. follow um, an electrified yeah. copper wire. But this is on a huge scale. This is you've just got yep, yep. RFID tags all over the place. It's incredible. Um, so as I was saying, they wanted the ride vehicle to be part of the storytelling. It is the camera for the attraction. And that's what's amazing about trackless ride systems is that what they were able to do is because Mystic Manor is sort of an a, a retelling of the Haunted Mansion, I think, or an homage. Yeah, I think we, we haven't really talked about that, but doesn't it have to do with uh, the Chinese superstitions or something? There isn't any ghosts per se in Mystic Manor, so that's why they needed this kind of original version of the Haunted Mansion instead of the traditional one? Yeah, the Chinese really don't like talking about death. It's sort of a taboo. So when you have the Haunted Mansion, which is full of ghosts and dead people Mm. and these really ominous themes, that just wasn't going to fly in Hong Kong. So this is why they came up with this new system or the, the new story in which everything was coming alive from this cursed music box, which we were talking about before. So there's no ghost, there's no ghouls or anything like that. It's just inanimate objects which are coming to life. And Mm -hmm. it works really well. It's the same sort of story as The Haunted Mansion, but retelling it in a different way. Hmm. So with the vehicles, what they were able to do different to the Omnimover is when you go around an Omnimover track, they sort of have to design everything in such a way that it's all on loops. So you can't really have any action scenes or anything like that because what happens if you're looking in the wrong way or if you're not there in time, things just sort of have to be happening on a loop around you. With the new technology of the trackless ride system, or at least the perfected technology, they were now able to point people where they wanted, and it became the camera of the ride. And that's, I think, where the animation experience from the um, designer, Joe, I believe, yeah, Joe Lancero, really came into play because he was able to point you into the various scenes. So, yeah, it's different in that the Omnimover has that, like, the tilting, you know, where it kind of faces you towards the different spaces at different times. But you've also got that, the hood over you, so it's really hard to kind of see out. The great thing about the trackless dark ride is, yeah, you can technically look wherever you want, but you don't really want to because it's so well designed in such a way that you're pointing exactly where you should be, but it also allows for so much rewritability because i remember when we were there we went on one time with the sole intention of trying to just look everywhere we shouldn't be looking (laughs) and i don't think once we saw anything that took us out of the ride no so the ride was designed in such a way that pretty much no matter where you looked it was all immaculately themed because you're always spinning around you're doing different things but they could still point you towards certain scenes where an event would happen and then you could transition from there. So instead of it just being like you're wandering around all of these scenes, you go into a room and there's a big plant monster that then blares at you and you spin around. And that was the cool thing that they were able to do with this new technology. 
I think it would be a good time to have a quick break before we move on, if that's all right. Sounds good. Interested in supporting Review Time further? We'd love to have you as a patron. Just head to patreon.com forward slash review time to check out the perks and benefits behind sponsoring the home for all things theme parks. Now back to the podcast. All right, and we're back. I think the best way to describe our thoughts on the ride is the fact that when we visited together in 2017, we marathoned the ride four times in a row just to experience what it was like from each different ride vehicle. <laughs> and I think that's the the rewritability of it comes a lot from that in that, yeah, everyone kind of gets a similar experience, but each vehicle and it... But each vehicle and each group in that vehicle gets their own little version of the story. So, in some parts, two ride vehicles split off and experience different rooms. One ride vehicle gets to the finale, which is spectacular. Oh, sorry. Um, One ride vehicle gets to the finale first. One gets there last. And every different ride, I highly recommend if you go there, Hong Kong is usually so quiet that you can do this and the cast members are so accommodating. Try and go on every single ride vehicle if you get the time and just ask a cast member, just say, can I go on this one this time? They'll most likely say yes and you'll get to experience each version differently. Yeah, so they are labelled one to four. Um, Mm. If I remember correctly, three was my favorite. So it would Mm. always get to the finale room first in which you're able to see the room sort of come to life. Uh, Whereas Mm -hmm. as you were saying, number one gets extra benefits. Number two gets uh, goes to a different room. Number four goes into a different area. And that's the great thing about the attraction is that you will always have a different experience depending on, you know, if you just to do it as a regular park goer. And I think that's what's amazing about this ride system is that when it comes back, number two doesn't necessarily have to be number two anymore. It can then easily just change over to number three. Off it goes again. Yeah, I think especially we talked, we touched on it a little bit, but that finale room, that is the room that proves how versatile and special the trackless system is. Because you could kind of see the other rooms maybe working if they had to rework them a bit in a traditional style Omnimover Dark Ride. But that finale room is spectacular. One of the best experiences I've ever had in a theme park, the Jade Monkey Room. And it just shows what you can do with the trackless ride system. And I'm hoping that Rise of the Resistance and Mickey's Runaway Railway and Ratatouille have a moment like that in them to prove the use of trackless dark ride because i've done um a trackless dark ride at SeaWorld orlando the kingdom of the penguins and it just kind of felt like they used trackless dark ride as a gimmick rather than they wanted to do something creative with it from what i've seen of rise of the resistance there isn't really anything similar to the jade monkey room there's you can see how they've used the system in a very unique way but there's they've used different benefits of the trackless ride mm-hmm. system. I won't spoil it. But before yeah. we get to the finale, we'll quickly bring ourselves back to the start mm-hmm. of the attraction. That's probably just to, a, a compliment of <laughs> a how good the teaser. finale is <laughs> because we're talking about it already. So as you head into the attraction, you've got the opening room with a, a pretty good animatronic of both Lord Henry and Albert. Mm-hmm. 
And this sort of sets the mood. They play with the music box and everything starts coming to life. And this is when you're introduced to the amazing music. I think the ride sort of really, it picks up here in the music room, heads through to the Mediterranean antiquities and sort of drops off towards the other bits. Then it picks up again and then it drops off and then it gets to the finale, finale, which is amazing. Like, did you feel that same ebb and flow? It's... Yeah, um, just quickly touching on the animatronics. They're, they're not, like, humanoid. They're kind of, like, this really nice stylized. So, it works that they're not, you know, A10,000s or anything like that. It works for the ride that Lord Henry Mystic is kind of this cartoonified version. Um, and, you know, he's not a re- Albert's not a realistic monkey. And I really like that they didn't go for super realism in that regard. Because it just works for the style and the flow of the attraction. Ooh, um, I have a fun fact regarding this. Mm. So originally they were going to have them more lifelike. If you look at the concept art, especially for Albert, and I mm-hmm. think I may have called him Alfred sometime earlier, but <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about. It's the monkey. <laughs> um, so if you look at Albert, he is very realistic. And the original design was to have them this way. But then they realized no one knows who these characters are. Mm. So if you go in there and they're these super realistic characters, people would be like, well, oh, I, I didn't really get, what, was that yeah. the same monkey? Was that a different monkey going around? Mm. Was that the same Lord Henry at the end? So using Joe, uh, I've forgotten his name, Joe Lanzacero, oh, I've probably yeah, slaughtered yeah, yeah. his name again, using again. his... <laughs> animating background they accentuated Mm. the features they like lord henry now has this huge monstrous mustache Mm -hmm. alfred or albert (laughs) is now this really sort of almost looks like a teddy bear Mm. but it worked very cute and we bought a plush version of him so that worked (laughs) oh well that's something that i'll bring touch on later is that merchandise for this attraction is Mm. phenomenal Mm -hmm. Um, But that's something that they, it was a challenge for them to try and get people to relate to these characters because Mm. nobody know, well, nobody knew who they were. So they had Mm. to sort of change them up to be more like cartoons because as soon as you see them, Lord Henry has this gigantic moustache. So when he's an animatronic, that's Lord Henry. Um, Albert is this really cute monkey so that when you see him as an animatronic, that's Albert. Yeah, and it it works. Um as well trying to picture the ride and kind of it doesn't take itself too seriously would have been really weird to see albert all throughout the ride if he was a realistic monkey because everything else is so symbolically stylized as you know their suits of armor but they've kind of got this bit of character to them you know they don't have jagged edges they're nice and smooth and all of that so i'm glad that they went that way um but yeah as you were saying about the ride it definitely has its high points and there's some parts that aren't necessarily low points. It's just that they're kind of forgettable in the how good the rest is. Um, so, the, yeah, I remember the music room, obviously, uh, the finale room. And then I remember the there's like a snake woman. That's all I remember. <laughs> but it was like a really surprising effect. So it left some form of... Uh, memory in my brain even though i can't remember it exactly um and then there was another like a projection map pot that sticks in my mind those are the ones that have stuck with me for some reason yeah so that's straight after the music room and that's what i was saying in it seems to ebb and flow with 
you've got this introduction with amazing effects. You head into the music room and you're introduced to the music. And then it hits mm. the Mediterranean antiquities where that's where you've got the snake lady and the projection map mm-hmm. pot, both amazing effects. But then it sort of, I don't know, it starts to not necessarily become bad. It's still amazing. It just, it starts to ease in. And I Mm. think that's a perfect opportunity to get people comfortable because once you Mm -hmm. get up to the finale room where things start Mm. going (laughs) wild, that's when you're like, ooh, okay, this is starting to get a a bit intense. (laughs) It kind of lulls them into this sense of, oh, this is just going to be a nice, calm ride. You know, it's showing things off, but it's not no intensity to it, really. There's some really cool effects and some awesome wow moments. But, yeah, you kind of let your guard down in a way. Mm. So when you get to that final room or even just before it where you've got the tribal scene where they start shooting Mm. at you with their darts, you're sort of like... That part and there's a part with a cannon. I remember physically (laughs) recoiling because I was worried. Yeah, so there's this one scene where your vehicle will purposefully point towards a cannon and then it will blast you in the face with smoke. It's similar to the effect in Indiana Jones um, Mm. where the smoke comes out the mouth and it's like... Um, Or the good old uh, ending of Figment. Those are the few times I've been blasted with air in rides and it shocked me. Disney love their use of blasting you with air. So that lead up where you start to realise that this isn't necessarily playful anymore. This is starting to get a bit out of hand and you can see Albert's expressions so they start to change. And that's where you get up to the finale room where the walls start falling away and you've got this amazing screen effect all around Mm. the walls. It's the jade monkeys just shooting at things with his wand. Mm. and it's just wow like that's the best way to describe it it's a really great mix of practical and digital effects um and that's what makes it so wow that you've got that nice projection mapping that starts in the room but the part where the room physically starts to fall apart really shows how precisely they made that room right you've got that awesome animatronic in the middle that doesn't even look like an animatronic at all until it starts to move you've got the projection mapping room the roof is completely and immaculately themed and then it starts to fall apart and the wind starts rushing around the room it truly is one of the greatest finales of any attraction the only things i can think on par are the um once you get to the lava monster in journey to the center of the earth Ah. that's about it honestly for wow finales to rides well i think what you were talking on there with the jade monkey starting to come to life is a great segue into the hidden details that you can find in this attraction. And it's got so many. When you first come into that finale, the jade monkey's not alive. And what they've done is they put these lids over his eyes. So he just looks like a statue. When he's electrocuted with the music electricity that they seem to have all throughout the ride his eyes then lift open and that's when he starts to have expressions and he starts moving around really ominously. It's amazing. Once I notice Mm. that that happens, because when you're riding it the first time, you just think he's just there all the time doing that. When you see him be electrocuted and come to life, that's amazing. And then once you get to the final scene, something I didn't notice until probably about my 20th ride, and I've ridden this more than... A hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> I would sometimes ride this like six times in a day. Um, 
because it was just so quiet. That's the great thing mm. about Hong Kong. That's Hong Kong. Um, in the final room, Albert is completely tattered. His shirt and all of that is just ripped. His hat is stuck to the wall with an arrow through it. <laughs> like that room has lots of similarities to the first room because mm. where you end in the attraction is where you start. But mm. it's all these little tiny details regarding Albert that makes mm. you realize that they put a lot of care into this attraction. Mm. And just the entire thing, you can tell this is something that Disney is proud of. This is something yep. that every person who's worked on that attraction has put all of their love and care and experience into because it is just that good. I think one of the the other wow moments, not as many people talk about it, um, it happens right at the start. As soon as he opens the music box, these like sparkles sort of go through the air in 3D space. Oh, that, <laughs> that effect. Yeah. Even though I now know how it works and knowing, and I've, I have seen it work one time um, just by knowing where to look, it still blows my mind. <laughs> it is spectacular. I've heard that there's like a, a laser shooting effect in Rise of the Resistance that's very like similar, but I don't know how to explain it other than there's almost looks like there's fairies flying around the room in 3D space. Like it's not just flat, it's... I don't know. It's incredible. I, I think you, you're right with that. It looks like the music dust is all through the room and mm. it's in areas where originally there wasn't anything there. And you're like, how is it just floating in the middle of the mm -hmm. air? And if you're looking in the right space, I don't want to give away how it's done because it's yeah, just yeah, such yeah. a good effect. If you're looking then in you the right- You can find it online. If you really want to know, but yeah. we don't want to spoil it here. <laughs> but it's just how it looks like there's just all of these lasers and dust in the midair is just amazing. And how they managed to transition it so quickly. It's about three seconds from when you can see this completely pitch black room with all of these very music dust going through mm. it to then being completely bright and you just see the room as it is. And all of mm. the way in which the effect is done is just gone. Is Oh, I thought of one other for my three most spectacular moments in any attraction. Yeah. Uh, Poseidon's Fury at Universal Studios Orlando has probably, I'm going to call it, a slightly more spectacular moment than the ending of Mystic Manor. Ooh. I know a lot of people don't love that attraction, but I will go to bat for that attraction anytime. And I will probably fly to Orlando when they eventually announce its closure to make sure I get one more ride on it. <laughs> but there's a room at the end of that ride that is spectacular. If you think Mystic Manor's ending is spectacular, I'm going to take you to Universal Orlando one day. And it is amazing. Please do. I've Mystic Manor's a close second. <laughs> Orlando three times now, and I've never been to Universal Studios Orlando. And I know that there is someone out there who is like, I am quitting watching any review time videos <laughs> because he's just said that. But look, it's... At least I've had a Universal Studios when I lived in Orlando. I had a Universal Studios season pass. So no Disney, but I have had Universal at least. That's true. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, as you then finish off the attraction after the finale and the finishing scene where you're reintroduced again to Lord Henry and he's like, well, well, I'm glad you didn't touch that music box. And mm. Albert's there looking like he's just been through... <laughs> The Second World War. Um, 
Lord Henry is not very observant, but I think that's mm. the best way to explain his character. Um, you're then let off the vehicle in the unload and you head into the gift shop. Mm. Merchandise is on point here. I've got one of their cups um, in front of mm-hmm. me at the moment and it is just, they've done a great job with all of the Mystic Manor merchandise. I think I can see three pieces of Mystic Manor merch looking around the room. I can see a pin, uh, a Tsum Tsum of Albert, and then like a bag clip version of Albert, which we both carried on us throughout <laughs> our entire Asia mega trip in 2017. That's true. We embraced the culture and we had plushes in our bags mm-hmm. and we had the really loud shirts. We We really got into it that trip. I think... Mystic, my Mystic Manor logo pin is the only non-limited edition pin that I wear on my, like, Disney Park show-off lanyard. So, that shows you how much I love this attraction. Well, it's pretty much limited edition because not many people get over to Hong Kong Disneyland anymore. So <laughs> Yeah, if, if nothing else you've gotten from this, please go to Hong Kong Disneyland. Especially, I think, next year. Frozen opens next year, even yeah. though it looks to just be a version of Frozen Ever After, which is such a shame because they've got original space to work they're not trying to fit it into an older attraction but it does look to have i think it's opening with a second attraction so there'll be another credit for you credit seekers there'll be now three coaster credits at hong kong yes so even though it is getting frozen ever after which is a replica of the one at epcot it is also getting um, a new sort of re-envisioning of the Seven Dwarves. And mm. I was... So something Oaken Slay, maybe? Yeah. Like that, so, it's it's based off the guy in the mountains who's like, yoo-hoo. Um, he, that's his attraction now. And I was listening to a podcast, I believe it was, which was on why they decided to go this route instead of using Seven Dwarves. And apparently, Seven Dwarves has just become very complicated um, mm-hmm. If you notice, they never refer to them as dwarves anymore. They're just, uh, it's Snow okay. White. Um, yeah. Even though I think it's called Seven Dwarves Mine Train. It is called Seven Dwarves Mine Train. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that opened uh, five or six years ago now. I think the one at Shanghai, if I remember correctly, isn't called Seven Dwarves. I may be wrong. And you're, be called, yeah. you are more than welcome Snow to White's tell me that. thrilling mine orc roller coaster. Well, well, that's the thing. In Disneyland, it's just called Snow White Scary Adventure. Yeah. Even though everyone knows Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And the Seven Dwarves. They just didn't have it in the name. Um, and I believe that there was a reason behind that. And it was just because the name became complicated with Synonymous, political yeah, yeah, yeah. correctness. Um, so mm. let's talk a little bit about... I think we've got here a section in which our personal thoughts on the attraction, I think we've expressed. I think we that box. <laughs> so, I just want to talk about how it changed Hong Kong Disneyland and how it's influenced other attractions. Because yeah. so, I obviously haven't... I, the only time I've ever been to Hong Kong was that time in 2017. And it honestly felt like with a few more additions, so when the Avengers ride opens and Frozen opens, it honestly could be one of the most complete Kingdom-style parks in the world. So it's crazy to me to think that the version 10 years before that was so disappointing to a lot of people. Well, I went there about a month after opening. That's one of my claim to fames that I was able to go to (laughs) Hong Kong Disneyland in the September that it opened. Um, surprisingly really quiet. Um, there was pretty much no one there, but when you went there, having been to 
uh, Orlando and having been to Disneyland, Hong Kong Disneyland didn't necessarily have a reason to exist on the international market. It didn't have its own identity. It was this amalgamation of worse products from around the world. So you had Space Mountain, which was a worse version. You had um, Pooh Bear, which was a worse version. You had Philhar Magic, which was the worst version. <laughs> Like it, it, it almost was, seems like the opposite of Paris, where Paris was trying to be the plus one version of every attraction around the world. Hong Kong was the minus one. Well, from what I remember, the the basis behind the park, um, listening to what Eisner's been saying, was he wanted it to be one of those parks that you go to and you're like, wow, this is great. I want more. And they're like, well, if mm. you want more, you can go to Disneyland or you can go to mm. Disney World. It was almost like a taster park. Um, so bizarre as well when you look at that original concept art and it had two parks in the resort. Uh, well, Yet they <laughs> opened the first park so small. It's like if they had a built a second, together they would have just made one park. Uh, it's Hong Kong is just uh, a mystery as to why... <laughs> It was the way it was for the first five to six years of operation. But when they introduced Mystic Point to a lesser degree, Toy Story and Grizzly Gulch, Mm -hmm. it gave the park its own identity. And it started to have something that made people go, I need to go to Hong Kong Disneyland. And that was one of the things that you immediately realize even to this day, from the last time I went there, when you go to that part of the park where you're at Grizzly Gulch and you're at Mystic Point, you feel like you're in somewhere unique, somewhere that you can't get anywhere else. And the rest of the park just feels like Disney minus. Yeah, which is such a shame because it it feels like if the rest of the park had have opened with such unique original attractions, it would have been probably regarded as the best Um, opening day park in the world but now it's taken like so many parks are opened around that time we're currently seeing them be fixed now almost 10 20 years after they've opened well september next year the park will be 15 years old which is i believe that paris is only 26 27 paris yeah 92 disneyland paris open look at that resort it has two parks it's got this huge um resort area it's got a downtown disney i just don't think that hong kong has been given the love it deserves in its Mm. earlier years and is now under Iger's reign starting to get that um but even now it feels like they're kind of back to the uh, neglecting it sadly like they announced that Avengers ride for Hong Kong so many years ago, and then now we've heard nothing about it until D23 this year, where they focused on it coming to DCA, even though they closed Autopia now, what, over three years ago to build this Avengers ride? It, it just seems like there's something going on with that park that we're either they're waiting for the perfect opportunity to do something or they're just sort of hoping that eventually people stop going so that then they can be <laughs> like, oh, look, we tried, it failed, sorry, and then they'll just pull out. Mm. Um, it uh, may. Disney Studios Paris can survive, Hong Kong Disneyland better survive. <laughs> oh, concrete, the theme park, my favourite. <laughs> um, so I just quickly want to touch on the trackless ride technology, mm. which I feel 
Mystic Metal was the first point in which the Imagineers felt like it was feasible. This was now something that they could use. Um, and Rise of the Resistance seems to be the perfection of the mm-hmm. thrilling trackless dark mm. ride. But I think Mickey and Minnie coming up next year, from what I've heard, will perfect the family trackless dark mm. ride. And it's surprising to me that it has taken 20 years for Disney to work out this technology. <laughs> they got it right with Mystic, but now they're perfecting it, if that makes sense. I think, I think that's the really bizarre thing is that, you know, um, up until a week ago, there was no trackless dark rides at Walt Disney World or Disneyland. And within six months of Rise of the Resistance opening, there will be three trackless dark rides, two of which are in the same park. So it's almost as if, Disney hit a point where they went, oh, yeah, this is the future. Quick, quick, quick. <laughs> and especially for... Um, I was the same. When they announced Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Whale... Uh, when are they... Bleh. When they announced Mickey and Minnie's... <laughs> it's a hard name. I'll give you that. Yeah. When they announced Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, I was a little bit, mm, this looks okay. But now just little glimpses I'm getting into the ride and reading stuff about it. I'm really excited to ride it next year. It's pretty much coming towards being one of the best family trackless dark rides ever. And from what Disney are talking about and the previews that media have gotten, because apparently people are already starting to ride it, which for me is crazy. I have a a friend who works over at Hollywood Studios and they're in the test and adjust phase at the moment, which means pretty much they're at the stage where they're just cycling ride vehicles through, making sure the ride's working. It doesn't open for a few more months, but that was exactly the same with Rise of the Resistance. People were riding it months before. It was just the problem of getting it reliable. Yeah, exactly. So I think it'll be interesting to see whether we see Mickey and Minnie do the old soft opening technique. It's something that I think it's kind of a problem that Disney haven't done that with Rise of the Resistance because... Back, you know, I remember you talking about when they soft opened Toy Story Mania and you were like, that was an incredible part of your trip. But imagine if you had gone during this time in, say, the last two days of your trip, you were a big, um, not a huge Star Wars fan, but you really wanted to ride Rise of the Resistance and you didn't realize that you had to get there at three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. to ride that attraction instead of the old method where it was just like, hey, come on over, we're open, we're not advertising it anywhere, but we just want you to test out this ride. And it sounds like they needed that because the ride's falling apart in a yeah, way. <laughs> they needed a few more months more than anything. Yeah. But I think it would be really interesting to see if these boarding groups become a thing Disney's using. But the biggest worry to me is that Disney may go, hmm, boarding groups work. What if we charged 10 to $15 a person to join a boarding group? And the only other way to ride was in a six-hour standby queue. I'm going to cut this all out so that it doesn't get into the public because that's too dangerous of an idea. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I think that pretty much covers Mystic Manor at Hong Kong Disneyland. Was there anything else that you wanted to say about the attraction before we, uh, we close off? 
I think if in the last hour we haven't convinced you that Mystic Manor alone is worth a trip out to Hong Kong Disneyland, it also has a really great uh, roller coaster with some really surprising effects in the Grizzly Gulch. It has two awesome stage shows, two of my favorite stage shows in the world. It's going to have an amazing castle. Please go give Hong Kong the love it deserves because it's really sad to see that park dwindling in numbers. Exactly. And it's hard with the political climate at the moment. Um, But I, my family recently came back from a trip to Hong Kong in the last month. They said in most areas, it's fine. It's business as usual. And it's a tough situation for everyone involved over there. But I think with Disney being as close to the airport as it is, it's pretty much working on the same basis as Eisner wanted it. Go in, get off the plane, head straight to the park. And then you can just jump back on the plane and head off in wherever you were going. Mm. So I I definitely think that everyone should experience this attraction because it mm. is, in my opinion, one of Disney's best. But I believe that that wraps up today's episode. Mm-hmm. If you would like to get into contact with any of us, I am at Review Time Dom on Twitter. Luke. And I am at Review Time Luke on Twitter. Makes it nice and easy. Um, <laughs> you can also follow us on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel if you haven't already come from there. And we also have a website, reviewtime.com. So that wraps it up for today. Thank you so much for listening. This is a pilot episode after all. So please give us feedback. We would love to hear from you and love to hear what topics you would like to hear in the future. Anyway, next week will be Luke's episode. Mm. Not sure what he's talking about yet. Secrets, secrets. So (laughs) we will see you all next week or in a bit of time as we figure out all the kinks. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. See ya. The Review Time Podcast is brought to you by Dominic Lacey and Luke Carroll. Additional help and production consultation provided by Rob Keynes. Special thanks to our patrons, Jake Cool, James McRoberts, Jeremy Kalfakis, Louis Nojira, Luke Schiacciatano, Peter Matthews, Ruben Mays, Ray Dredge, and to you, the listener. We couldn't do this without all of you, and we hope to see you next week on the Review Time Podcast. <laughs>